Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Chris Bailey. Chris works at IBM and he's an advocate for Swift on the server. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Garrick. My pleasure. How's it going? What are you up to? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Um, I've got the Playgrounds Conference in Melbourne next Thursday, so preparing for that at the moment. All right, nice. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. I, I wanted to go to that, but uh, I think next year maybe I'll be on the uh, the tour, the circuit, you know, the conference circuit. Uh, I'm still kind of new in my, uh, my you know, getting out there and teaching people uh, phase. Yeah, hopefully it'll be fun and I'll, uh, I'll let you know what it's like. Oh, I'm sure it will. I actually had Andy Hope, the creator of Playgrounds Comp, on recently. He sounds like a great guy, and uh, the, the conference really sounds awesome. And I'm glad uh, IBM was able to, uh, to, to you know, make it out there and represent. Uh, Swift on the server is really important, and uh, I'm really happy you guys are you're making that push. We actually just had a um, Swift and Kutura session um, at my meetup two weeks ago. So, uh, you know, I'm not that new to teaching. I've been doing it for a few years. Um, but, uh, yeah, what, what are conferences like? Like you've been probably doing it for a while. Um, I, I kind of want to get into that and, uh, haven't, haven't done it yet. Like on a big scale, have you been doing it for a while? Um, yeah, I mean, I did my, probably I did my first conference about 12 years ago. So oh, wow. my background before Swift, I, I spent a number of years working on the Java programming language. And then I came to Swift via a couple of years working on Node.js, um, the server-side JavaScript language. Um, so yeah, I, I've done conferences and presenting for a while, and I, I always find the you know it's difficult to get started. You always feel like you don't know enough, um, or that you're you're the imposter in the room. You know, you're you're presenting to, to hundreds of people, and it's like, do I really know enough to be able to to you know, inform these people? Um, and the simple matter is, like, it, it's really simple. It's if you've had to solve a problem yourself, if you've had to learn something yourself, then the chances are there's a whole number of other people who don't know that either and will have to go through the same learning experience. And learning from someone who's just learned it themselves is, is one of the, uh, the best ways of doing it. Yeah, it sounds like it's just a matter of, like, setting aside the time and getting that idea together and really getting that like nugget. Uh, I remember your conference and this is actually how we met. Um, Chris and I met at uh, uh, Swift summit uh, in San Francisco back yep. in November. And your talk is one of the ones that I remember. I remember a few, but yours is definitely one of them is because you have like that nugget. You had a really good story. First off, people love stories. You had the Mars mission, 1994, 1984 story. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, the Mars like crash. And I tell people that actually we use that as an example of like why Swift on the server is a good idea at my meetup uh, last week. So um, I think that's just like really important, like getting that like kind of nugget of information down, getting that story down to really get people engaged, like when you're giving a talk. Yeah, so hopefully the video will be out soon. So everyone will be able to, uh, to see what was there. Yeah, I think I saw there was a link to it in one of the recent newsletters. It was iOS Dev Weekly or um, or uh, This Week in Swift. I'll, I'll take a look and link to it in show notes. 
Um, all right, so you are working at IBM. You are an advocate for Swift on the server. Can you tell us about like what does that mean right now? Like what are the different uh, what are the different hats you're you're wearing and roles you're kind of playing um, as it as it relates to like Swift on the server? I know you you know you work at IBM. You're a part of the Swift um, API Swift Server API working group. I think it's called. Um, so can you explain like what you're up to? Um, yeah, I mean, well, maybe it will help to start off with with some of the journey. So, um, you know, Swift uh, was was made open source in you know early December 2015, um, and that's the point that that I was kind of asked to get involved by some of the team at IBM. And the first thing I was doing was looking at what it takes to to really help Swift get running properly on Linux. So at that point, you could run Swift. Um, you know, the standard library was there. Um, so, you know, your, your basic um, uh, syntax, you know, worked, et cetera, but there was a lack of APIs and in particular, uh, Grand Central Dispatch, the, the concurrency library um, wasn't there. So that's where I started. I started off by um, helping a couple of my colleagues in IBM um, work on getting uh, Grand Central Dispatch up and running on, on Linux. And once we got that into fairly good shape, I started working on the foundation libraries um, and started working on some of our, our you know, own server components around Kitora, our, uh, our web framework. Um, and as we were doing that, one of the things that became um, apparent from a, from a server-side perspective is Apple's done a, a very, very good job of creating APIs uh, to, to create applications um, for very specific use cases. Uh, so a lot of what's in foundation is really designed to be used in a, a client application. Um, there's very little that's reusable or, or designed for the server use case. Mm. So um, the side effect of this is, you know, we, when we created Katora, um, the first thing we had to do was create server sockets, the ability to accept an incoming network connection. And obviously that's something you don't really have to do on an iOS device. Um, so we built um, our server sockets in a networking library um, because most things you host, they deal with HTTP traffic. We needed to create an HTTP parser. Um, people running server workloads, they want them to be secure. So you need network security. So we added um, HTTPS and um, SSL security. Um, so we had to build out a whole load of components because they weren't part of the foundation library. Um, and we weren't the only people doing the same things. Uh, so, you know, there's a number of other frameworks out there. Um, you know, uh, there's Vapor, Zwoo, Perfect, and, and quite a few others. And they'd all pretty much done the same thing. Um, they'd had to start off by creating server sockets and an HTTP parser and a security library. Um, so there was kind of this, the core library API system um, that's part of, of Swift is, is really focused on client use cases and does a very good job of it. Um, to build out those server use cases, we need a whole set of new APIs. And, you know, we had eight or nine different groups almost implementing the same thing individually. Um, so we started to have a chat with um, some of the other groups doing, doing this and starting to talk about, well, why don't we actually just collaborate and have a standard set of libraries that we all 
um, you know, help to enhance and, and agree on um, and create a standard set of server APIs that we can you know, sit alongside foundation and provide um, uh, an API ecosystem for, for everybody to use that acts on the server. Um, and then if we add additional platforms to, to the Swift language, so if we go beyond you know, the macOS and iOS platforms and Linux, you know, if we say wanted to add Windows support, then people wanting to add Windows support could add server windows through the server APIs and all of the frameworks um, would inherit from that. So that's a, a large bit of what I've been doing um, in the last 12 months since, since you know, the open source of the Swift language. Um, there's but a, I do, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, go ahead. Well, there's a lot there and, and a bunch of questions come to mind. And <laughs> so one of them is why is it that this is not already built into, let's say, Foundation or Darwin or, you know, into Swift? Or is it, but it's just not exposed? That's sort of one question. Or, or do we just, we just can't know because it's just sort of behind Apple's wall? Um, so, so part of it is the fact that, as I said, um, Apple has done a very good job of optimizing the APIs for the use cases that developers have. And those use so cases iPhone, are about building watch the the Mac, uh, the TV. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like there is HTTP parsing in Foundation, but it's part of URL session, which is right. all designed to do an ant bound network connection to connect to you know a server. Ah, um, we want to do the reverse of that. Yeah. Ah, I see. That's so. That was sort of my next question. Is like. Yeah, you have NSURL session. I'm assuming there's that type of work happening behind NSURL session, but that's all for outgoing. And then obviously the response, you know, there's usually like a, maybe a closure or something like that. Um, so, but you you guys set out to sort of do the reverse. Like I, I, am, I am a Swift program. I want to receive uh, responses. I want to receive like an NSURL request. Yeah, so it's kind of like the, the, the mirror image that we want to do. Now, one of the, the key tenets of what we're doing under the, um, the server API workgroup stuff is that we want to make sure everything is interoperable, right? Um, so we're not going to go off and um, implement our own version of what an HTTP request and response looks like. We want to be able to reuse URL requests and URL response, which are in foundation. Um, you know, we want to reuse the foundation types everywhere so that you, know, you as a programmer, um, you can move between doing server and client side coding and you're programming in a way that's familiar with you with types that are familiar with you and using APIs that are familiar with you. And in fact, we really want to be able to take code that works on the server and move it to the client and take code that works in the client and move it to the server and be able to place code where it's best to be placed for the application that you're, you're, you're building. So does that mean that you're like ex extending NSURL session? I mean, I've worked with Kutura a lot, uh, not a lot, sorry, a little bit. And I know that there's like this concept of a router, uh, which is like one of the main kind of components you're using. Uh, would I, or are you talking about like sort of extending NSURL session and, and NSURL session kind of becomes the router or something like that? Um, no, not quite. Um, so NSURL sessions kind of um, really optimized for a, a set of use cases. And those are about the outbound connection. And um, so rather than being about a single outbound request, it's about a session of them, so multiple requests. 
um, and you can store cookies on the session and so on. The, what we're doing on the server is slightly different, but when you have a URL request, which is part of what you do inside your session, it'll be the same thing that's arriving um, in, in the server listener. So what, gets, oh, I see. what you get I see. through from the router will be a URL request, which uh, I see. happens to have come from a client using URL session. Okay. So then the other kind of the question that kind of comes up is you have you know, IBM doing Keturah and, and Vapor and Perfect, and then uh, the server uh, API working group comes together. I'm assuming that there are different, you know, there's different perspectives or different people, different agendas and goals and intentions. Um, what, what can you, like, what is, what are some of the common sort of intentions and goals? And if there are any different ones, like how, what was that experience like, like sort of waving the white flag and like bringing everyone together? Um, it's actually been pretty good. Um, so you, could almost have thought that because we have several you know, competing frameworks, that getting the, the people involved to collaborate would be difficult. Um, and actually, that's not been the case. Um, everyone's been very open, and everyone's been you know, actually pretty collaborative. Um, the, the big debates we have are all technical. Um, so... There's a lot of discussion, for example, around um, whether it's okay to implement Swift APIs using C code. So mm. if you actually look at um, Foundation itself um, and Grand Central Dispatch for that matter, large amounts of both of those APIs are actually implemented in C code under the covers. Uh, but you have um, a Swift API that you work with and to a developer, it looks like you're using Swift. Right. Um, so. There's a question for, for the, the new APIs that we're working on, whether we should take the same approach. So, for example, um, security. Now, writing secure security code is super important. Um, now, we could go off and we could write um, you know, crypto algorithms and secure transport layers in Swift code ourselves. Um, but that is a, a huge piece of work, and there's a very, very good chance in fact, it's almost certain that we're going to write a version that is not as high quality as an existing library that's been used for the last 15 years and has huge amounts of adoption, right? Okay. It's that fact that no matter how good a developer you are, your code has bugs in it when you first write it. And those bugs get shifted out over time. So we could write 350,000 lines worth of Swift code to implement um, a, a full set of security and crypto capabilities. Or we could use an existing C library, um, something like OpenSSL, which okay. is used in many, many different places and is battle-tested and battle-hardened, and just add a Swift layer on top of it so the programmer has no real um, knowledge of the fact that it happens to be using C under the covers. That sounds good to me. Um, well, yes. Now, for security, it's kind of more cut and dried because it is a big body of code, and it's very important that you get it right because it's all about security. Now, right. at the other end of the scale, um, simple HTTP parsing. Right. So the HTTP 1.1 spec, um, there is a C parser, and it's actually only about two, two and a half thousand lines worth of code. Um, so there's an argument that we could rewrite that in Swift because it's not a huge amount of code, and 
yes, we would have more bugs, but those will get shifted out over time. Right. Um, but there's also the argument that, well, you know, you are actually at that point reinventing the wheel. Um, and Swift is actually very performant, but Swift at its best is not going to be faster than C at its best. And again, mm. this, the HTTP library has been around for a number of years and has had a huge amount of performance optimization done to it. So if we can't beat the C implementation, we might as well just use it. Um, and if we can find some examples in the future of how a Swift version would be better, um, you know, because you know, we find the C version is harder to maintain because there's lots of Swift developers that want to maintain the library right. and they don't really have great C, um, C skills, then right. we can always switch over. And you know, programmers using the, the, the Swift API we provide will never know that we've changed the implementation because the API will stay the same. So, so those what, are the sorts what's... of things we've had debates about. And what's what are people like who is involved in that, let's say that specific debate, whether to rewrite the Swift, rewrite the HTML, HTTP parser in, in Swift or to keep the existing one and just to create a Swift um, API. Like who's involved in that debate and like what side is sort of winning, I guess. Um, yeah. So the, the simple answer to that is that the people involved in the discussion is absolutely anyone and everyone that has signed up to the the Swift Server Workgroup. Swift Server Workgroup. So it's just like Swift Evolution or Swift uh, Package Manager, like the other, like there's those specific sort of groups like Swift Development, Swift Evolution, right? And you can just join, there's another one called Swift Server Working Group, and you can join that one, participate, and have your voice be heard, and, and et cetera. Yep. So um, we have our own uh, Git repository called Swift-Server. Um, okay. Anyone can uh, sign up to join the working group. You just raise a pull request against the readme to add your name to it. Um, and we use that to notify people when we're having uh, a call. So we have WebEx meetings um, every few weeks and we have you know, a, a live discussion. We also okay. have um, a Swift.org mailing list, um, so we have discussions there, and we publish, you know, all of our agendas and minutes in the workgroup repository. Um, we have a proposal out at the moment on how we're going to build security, um, so that's out there ready for review. Um, so you know, there's kind of no hidden conversations. Um, mm -hmm. It's either happening as part of our, our WebEx meetings, and we write up the full set of minutes and they get reviewed by everybody that was on the call, um, and we you know, discuss stuff on the mailing list. It's a tough question because on the one hand, we might want to get up and running with Swift on the server as fast as possible with all the you know, features and get it up to parity with other, you know, other languages, let's say. Um, and at the same time, we might want to do it right, so to say, the first time. And let's say in the future, there are all these Swift developers that want to contribute to the HTTP parser, but it's written in Swift. They might not be able to because they don't know C. Um, however, maybe there's enough uh, things out there for the community work to work on, um, or maybe it'll um, sort of encourage them to learn C, or maybe there'll always be enough C developers. It's really tough. Um, or maybe one day we will just rewrite it in, in Swift yeah, it's, it's a really tough question. I, I, I can see that. And that happens with everything, I'm sure. Security, this HTTP parser, and all this other stuff. 
Yep. Um, and we've had lots of discussion about other things like types. You know, um, in, in Swift, you have the option of using both value types and reference types. Right. Um, so, we, so we've had a lot of discussions to what is the right approach for, for uh, different types of data and structures that we want to be able to, to, to use. Um, and it's one of those things that getting that right and getting all of the people we want to participate agreed in some ways is the hard bit. Writing the code and producing the package afterwards, that's fairly easy. But getting um, you know, broad consensus across everyone is sometimes a slow process. Um, you know, we, we spawned the work group maybe three months ago now. And we're, we're finally getting to the point that those proposals are starting to come out for how we're going to do it. Um, those all go out onto Swift Evolution. Um, and you know, once we have that broad agreement, then what in my mind sometimes is the easy bit of actually starting to write the code and get the packages out there and have you know, our 0.1 that people can kick the tires on. Um, that, that should all start to happen pretty quickly afterwards. So let's say a, a year into the future, two years into the future, uh, we have these standards, uh, Swift server standards are, are more well-defined and, and built out. What does uh, Swift uh, on the server for IBM or you know Swift on the server for Perfect look like? Does this more become like you still have your own sort of APIs, or you, but really it becomes more about a platform? So for IBM, it's like cloud perfect. Maybe it's like easily getting up and running with a Swift server. Uh, because perfect, I, I remember I was looking at it. It seems like they were trying to build like a business around Swift on the server. And then I know IBM has like their the blue mix and all that. So where is sort of the room for that? So what we're what we're working on as part of the 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 API work group is um, the stuff that we're all doing, right? So um, building security and networking, those are really infrastructure stuff. And there's not a lot of room for innovation there. There is room to do it well and you know, apply good engineering practices and do it with good levels of performance. But there's no real um, innovation and there's no real um, alternative approaches of how you do things. Um, once you get up to the framework level, um, that's where there are different design decisions you can make um, and you have different programming paradigms. And I think developers will will you know, find a framework which feels natural for the way they like to program or have some features that they particularly like. Um, and this has happened with, with most of the languages I, I work on, right? Um, so Java has been around for 22 years now. Um, and Java was actually slow to move to the server, um, but it, it's there and it has been for a long time. And there's still a selection of, you know, 10 plus different web, web and application frameworks that you can use. And they're all different and they all offer different features and function. And I think that's where we will be for, for Swift in two years' time. There will be, you know, Perfect is there, and it provides an, an API and a style of programming that, you know, you may prefer. Likewise, you might prefer Vapor or Zewu or Kator. I get that. Okay, so then there are a few things that, as you're sort of saying, there's no innovation. I think really what you mean is, like, it's settled it's very solid, um, and uh, there, yeah, we can like there doesn't need to be a different ways of doing it. Like everyone is kind of doing it in the same way, which is kind of interesting. Maybe 
maybe someone wants to swoop in and have there's an opportunity there. But okay, so things like security, HTTP parsing, um, there's some other things. That, these are things that the server working group you guys are focused on, right? So security, networking, HTTP parsing. What else is there? Like some high, um, you know, some basic ones, foundational ones. Yeah, so those those are the three things we're focused on at the moment: networking, um, HTTP parsing, which includes um, HTTP 1.1, HTTP 2, and WebSockets. Okay. Um, and we may expand it with other, you know, um, HTTP-based protocols as we go. Um, and security and security, we can imagine, will expand over time as you get more crypto algorithms and, and so on. That, that'll be something that continues to evolve. But that's very much where we're we're focused today because they're all low level. Um, they're all fundamental building blocks of any server side framework that you want to build, and that includes non web frameworks, right? So we, you know, Zwoo, Vapor, and so on. They're all web frameworks. Um, but what if someone wanted to build, I don't know, a message broker, right? So something that, um, you know, is using uh, the MQTT protocol that's used for the Internet of Things, and it wants to do a, a pub, um, publish subscribe engine. Uh, to build one of those, you need server sockets, and you're probably going to need security. Um, so we're, we're kind of building these foundational APIs that will enable, hopefully, an entire um, server ecosystem, not just uh, you know, standardize the low-level stuff that the existing frameworks are doing. Can you give an example again, uh, another example of like what you could potentially do with that? You said like an Internet of Things device? Um, yeah, so messaging engines are designed to like receive traffic from uh, a vast number of different things and allow other things to register to be notified about them. Um, so, so MQTT, which is the uh, message queue telemetry transport protocol, um, it was actually uh, one of its uh, initial use cases was the telemetry in Formula One cars. Okay. Um, so that has a, a publish subscribe broker where messages come in and other users can register to get a copy of that message. Um, you can do chat engines through it and that sort of thing. And what, do you know what that's written in? Um, so there's a whole number of them today. So uh, there's one called uh, RabbitMQ. Um, IBM has a whole number of them. We have one called uh, uh, Message Broker. We have another one called MQ itself. Um, largely, um, some are written in Java, some are written in C. Um, but they're, they're just you know, high-performance uh, uh, server frameworks. So Interesting. So we can, can do that type of stuff eventually, you know, one day. Yeah, I mean, I mean, someone could build one today, but they'd have to do the same things that the, the web frameworks have done. They'd have to start off by writing a server socket, and then they'll have to start off by writing security and, and so on. Okay. So then going back to uh, so, so the server working group, they're fo you guys are focused on those sort of big three things, and then the room for uh, sort of uniqueness or, or flavor for for people like you know for IBM or for Vapor for 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 Perfect as you said is the style of of the the API um, and different types of features and or maybe like a niche like what you might use um, IBM you know Katura for versus what you might use Perfect for um, so so there's still room for these different these different frameworks or these different libraries 
but you uh, but the the working group is sort of solidifying these standards yeah it's awesome. so yeah and in fact standards is probably the the right word in that um, so HTTP is already a standard um, the security uh, cryptography algorithms are, are standardized you have secure transport standardized in terms of TLS so these are already covered by specification um, so what we're kind of doing to begin with is implementing the things that already have a standard that you have to implement. And hopefully that lets the framework team spend more time on things which are higher value, like you know, adding monitoring so that you can have a, a server and you can understand how it's performing and you get um, you know, web dashboard views of you know, when someone calls my HTTP route, how, how long did it take to respond, right? Those are far more valuable things to be spending time on than uh, dealing with low-level networking issues. So how, how much time are you dedicating to this? I mean, it sounds like this is sort of like an extracurricular activity. Um, what, is, what is that like? I mean, I'm sure you have all these other things you're doing at IBM. What, what does that look like? Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 fair to say that um, there's always more time that could be applied to any any job that you're working on, and um, I think you know the the server working group stuff is going to come into life over the next uh, two to three weeks. I think we've spent a lot of time discussing and going through those technical issues and getting a broad agreement from the, the stakeholders who are most interested. Um, we're in the middle of writing up uh, a number of the, the draft proposals. So security is already out there. HTTP will arrive very shortly. Um, and at that point, once we've actually got code to start writing, then you know, personally, I'll be spending more time on it. And I'm, I'm sure that a number of the, the other stakeholders will as well. It's, you know, once there's actual code down there, then it's much easier to, to get involved and do real work. Uh, right now, it seems like uh, Node.js and you know MongoDB is kind of like a standard. I hear that a lot. Like even where you know, um, at my work, I hear I hear that a lot. Um, are you familiar with with Node.js um, at all? I mean, that's that's like basically it's like Kitura in a way, right? Yeah. So um, I but for, I spent, for JavaScript. Yeah, I, I spent a couple of years working on the Node.js language in between Java and, and Swift. Oh, wow. um, and in fact, I did a little bit of work on Express, which uh, is the Node.js, uh, it's the most popular Node.js server framework, and it's, it's what Kitora is loosely based on. Um, so the style is very, very similar. If, um, you know, if you're a Node Express developer and you come to Kitora, you will uh, feel very much at home. Okay, yeah, so our... I believe our backend is um, uses some of that, and our service virtualization is using uh, Node.js and MongoDB. And so when I like r start up my local um, uh, SV and I go to like my local host, it says "Welcome to Express." So I have like a little bit of experience with that. My question then is: It, it seems like it's become a standard, or it's very popular. Like, when does that moment happen for Swift? Like, what, when do you think that is? Or, like, what is required? When is that sort of, uh, that, that, that sort of moment, that snowball moment, I guess, for, for Swift on the server? So, for, for, for Node, it probably took um, three or four years from the point that, 
you know, Ryan Dahl, the, the, the guy that created it, actually, you know, uh, spoke about it at a conference and uh, announced it as being available to the point that, you know, it really took off. Um, and in fact, at a couple of the Node conferences over the last 12 to 18 months, um, it's, it's noticeable that the conversation has changed from, hey, this is what Node is, it's really great, come and try it, to people at um, you know, some of the bigger companies talking about how their company is now using uh, Node for, for real workloads. So Node's been around for about six or seven years now, and it's kind of finally hit that maturity curve. Um, I think Swift's moving faster than that. Um, but in a lot of ways, it is still early days. So Swift 3 was the first release that formally had support on Linux. Um, and that was only last September. Um, so we're kind of like six months after GA. Um, we have, you know, uh, full, um, fully released, fully ready uh, web frameworks on top of it now. And we are starting to see people actually get Swift server applications up and running in production and you know, providing real services. Um, so for me, that's happened phenomenally quickly for a, for a language which has only just arrived on Linux and has really only just had um, you know, some server capabilities added to it. Um, so I think is, it, is it just more time that's needed or are there still some features uh, or feature sets um, I hear a lot about just like libraries being built up. That's sort of required. Yeah, there's there's um there's a fair amount of that. Um, so, it in terms of just like the foundation APIs, um, foundation itself isn't yet complete on Linux. Um, some of the APIs which aren't implemented, um, you probably don't need to worry about things like NS Energy Formatter, um, is not so relevant on a server. Um, there's a few things in there which we are still trying to close down. Um, we've had um, some, some more work done on URL session, and that's now almost complete for, for you know, all of the different ways of using um, URL session. And that's going to be uh, a key one for me. Um, but in the wider ecosystem, um, so there's now support for most of the databases that you might want to use. So if you want to use MongoDB, um, you know, there's support for it. There's support for uh, Apache Cassandra. Um, for Postgres, for MySQL, um, for, uh, for Cloudant and CouchDB. So the support for a lot of the, the backend databases that you want to use. Um, and as these extra packages get added, then more and more use cases will be opened up. Um, but another key set of function which really needs to be there for people to take an application, run it on a Swift server, you know, put it into a cloud, and say that I'm happy for, for my business to be betting on it. And those are around things like scalability. Um, and by that, I don't mean you know, having a Swift instance, which can take a lot of load and a lot of you know, um, clients working with it. We, we actually already have that today. We've got some benchmarks that show um, Swift on the server is faster than, than Node Express. And lots of people are using Node Express. Um, it's, it's more about you never want to deploy just one of them, right? If you want to have a, a service which is going to be reliable, then you need at least two and preferably three. And really, you would like to be able to increase and or decrease the number of instances you've got based on the amount of load that's coming into the system. 
So was that um, like uh, server virtualization? Um, so we call it auto scaling. Um, okay. So so the idea is that as uh, you have uh, an increase in users um, wanting to use your server, so let's say that means that you know uh, an extra hundred thousand people have just downloaded my app. And because they've all downloaded my app and they're now using, um, I don't know, the ability to store notes, which we've implemented on the server, um, I now have a, potentially have an extra 100,000 connections. And to right. deal with that, my single server may not be enough. I may need two or three of them. So we, um, we for the other languages and soon for Swift, um, have this ability called auto-scaling, which says, okay, my server is now basically reaching as much capacity as it can handle. Right? It can't handle any more users. So we'll automatically give you another one. And once that starts to reach its, its limit of usage, we'll dynamically add another one for you. Equally, now, if you lose users, we'll remove one because you don't need it anymore. Now, is that a language feature or is that more of like a platform feature, like something, let's say, like AWS, Amazon uh, Web Services would offer? Like how does that relate to the language? Um, so it doesn't relate to the language, but it relates to the packages and the modules that you've got available. So okay. in order for this to work, the, the, the Swift server has to be able to tell something that it's reaching the limit of what it can do. Oh. Um, and that's one of the things that we've been working on for the, for the last few months inside IBM for Kitora. Um, but we're doing it in such a way that it'll be usable with any of the other frameworks as well. Um, so, so that's like a key set of function that's needed to make something production ready. Um, monitoring is another part of that and, and, and so on. But I think these kinds of capabilities are going to arrive over the next 12 months. And I think towards the end of this year, you'll probably see many, many more people saying, I now have Swift on the server running in production, I have apps connecting to it. I'm using it to host web pages. You know, you'll, you'll see much more of this. Wow, that's exciting. So, what about the Swift Package Manager? Is that really important for the rise of server-side Swift? For instance, um, in my you know, doing my local SV stuff that I was telling you about, um, I would um, sometimes have to use the Node Package Manager, I believe, in like npm install or um, what else? Like RVM, like the Ruby version manager, like this kind of stuff. I guess like it maybe the more like the node package manager. So like is that something that's very related? So as like the Swift package manager becomes more developed, then the Swift server stuff will be more useful? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, package management is uh, a key function. So when we talked about the, you know, the rise and the surge of adoption of, of Node.js, um, one of the, the key things that caused an inflection point was the availability of Node Package Manager, so NPM. Um, and you know, we've got an advantage in Swift that we had SPM, Swift Package Manager, from day one. Um, and that you know, allows you to, to import these extra packages that you need. Now, whilst we've had it from day one, it's not been, um, you know, fully integrated into Xcode. Um, it's not quite as elegant as we would like, but there's been a lot of good work done over the last, um, over the last 12 months. And I think, I, or I hope 
um, that we're going to see some probably good announcements at WWDC this year about better Swift Package Manager support, hopefully natively supported inside Xcode and so on. So I think I think that support's going to get better, um, and hopefully, you know, we'll get to the point that if you look at the number of packages available for Ruby, so the Ruby gems, there's something like eighty thousand of them available. I think. Wow. Um, for for Swift today, I think we're on about three and a half thousand. So we've got a, a long way to go, but I think, you know, again, over the next twelve months, we're going to see that accelerate quite rapidly. And so the server working group, are you guys in touch with the Swift package manager, uh, like mailing list and that whole working group, um, and sort of saying, hey, this is sort of what we need. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts? Uh, does that have to come up at all? Is is that something that comes up? Um, occasionally, yes. I mean, you know, everything that's being done in um, open source Swift has mailing lists. Um, so everyone is is kind of aware of um, what everybody else is doing. Um, so, so yeah, the communication's there. Um, and I think it's probably just going to get better over time. And going back to what you said about finishing up the port of foundation to Linux, so essentially making the foundation um, framework uh, and those APIs available on Linux. So for those of you, you know, listening, um, you know, you have, let's say, uh, I guess, NSURL session. I think that's a part of foundation, right? So you have that, you have access to that when you're making your iOS app. Um, so making that available when you're making your Swift server, like where is that? work happening is that also happening um in like on a swift on swift.org and like on the swift github or yep yeah okay, so what, what group is that called swift swift foundation uh yeah so there's um ooh, uh swift core libs foundation is the okay. name of the github project um and that's where the full linux version of the foundation resides now okay um, we we got an initial version of URL session in last August, so we put up there was a version in there when Swift three went out the door, um, and you know since then we've been working to improve it. So there's been a number of um, a number of existing uh, Swift packages that we've taken that allow you to connect to to services or to databases that use URL session. Um, one of them is uh, uh, um, a package that IBM actually provides for connecting to the Cloudant database. So we've been using those taken, you know, they work from iOS and we've been using them inside the Swift server to try and iron out any bugs that we've got inside the Linux version. Um, and we're now pretty much getting there through a, um, a lot of hard work with my colleagues called uh, Pushkar Kulkarni based in, based in India. Um, and yeah, we're, we're pretty close. Um, and one of the key value points of having that is you're going to be able to take some um, some libraries and some packages that you would use on iOS today, and you're going to be able to run them in the server. So if you have things that work with like an object store um, or um, that you're using um, for authentication directly, uh, you'll be able to actually reuse those exact modules in the server because we've got foundation up and running and it uses foundation APIs. Wow. Okay. Oh, wow. That's great. 
really, really, really exciting, uh, exciting stuff. Um, I mean, it's been uh, like four, you know, like forty minutes or something, and we actually didn't even get to ask you any questions about your personal life. So I don't know. I think we might have to have you back on uh, and, and check in with you about all the work that you're doing, and then maybe we can uh, get to know you more because I feel like there's just uh, still so much that I want to talk to you about uh, related to, you know, Swift on the server, and uh, and and I feel like your perspective is based in sort of Swift as it like applications of Swift, like the non-typical applications of Swift, which really excites me. So when people think of Swift, they immediately think iOS mostly, um, Apple Watch, TV, uh, Mac, right? But you are focused on Swift on on Linux, on on the server. And so that's like sort of the non-typical you know, application of Swift, which really excites me because I like the idea of thinking that my skills are going to be transferable beyond an Apple device. And so yeah. I really, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for, for us um, as, as IBM and the people working on, on uh, you know, on Katora, we see it as, you know, so if you're developing your iOS um, app and you need uh, a back end to do something, whether that's store data in a database, whether that's, you know, you've got some, you've got like a, a REST API that serves you with some information, but for network reasons, you don't want to pass all of that information down to the client. You want to be able to filter down just the bits of information that you need. You know, it's crazy for you to have to learn Swift to write the iOS parts and then learn Ruby or Python or Java in order to do the server parts, right? You should just be able to do both parts in the language that you know and understand. And as it turns out, Swift is actually quite a good language on the server. Um, and I think we're going to see that Swift will, you know, proliferate to a number of other environments. Um, the fact that it's, it's um, you know, come from an embedded, uh, an embedded scenario you know, the fact that it's designed to be um, low memory, um, the fact that it's designed to not burn a lot of CPU to preserve battery life um, means that we're going to have probably a good fit for it in IoT devices, right? Embedded in, I don't know, fridges in cars, right? There's a lot of potential for where, for where Swift could go. Okay, I really want to get into that. Uh, before we do, what one thing... Or, or yeah, I would say like, what one thing would you say to someone um, when you when you bring up Swift on the server and they sort of shoot you down um, because they either they think they know or they really just don't know, but they just think they do. Um, you know, what's like one thing? So like, I bring it up sometimes to certain people, and they really just kind of shoot it down as if like, oh, come on, you know, like what sort of one thing um, w would you say to something like that? Well, it, it kind of depends on the person and where they're coming from. Right? Um, so an interesting one is around performance, right? Um, we already know that Swift um, on the server is faster than Node Express um, and significantly faster than Ruby on Rails. Um, so performance is, is definitely there. Um, another one is, is purely financial, right? Um, if, you, if you take a an application, you deploy it into a cloud, whether that's um, Amazon or whether it's Heroku or whether it's IBM Bluemix. 
all of these clouds charge you according to how big a container you want to put your application into. And that size of container is, is done according to memory. So the fact that Swift runs in a small amount of memory means that it's actually cheaper to run it. So you've got the fact that it's fast and it's cheaper to run. Um, now, as a pure developer, I might not care about those two things, right? Because I'm someone that writes code. Right. Um, now, the other good thing about Swift is it's, it's been designed almost obsessively um, to, be, to be easy to program. And in fact, more than that, easy to read. So the, the whole thing about like naming parameters and so on, um, it's designed to make the code readable. Now, I, I don't know what it's like when, when uh, you write code, but when I write code, I do it once. And then a few months down the line, I'm going to come back and I'm going to have to look at code that I wrote previously. And right. if I don't remember what I did at the time, I have to read it to understand. And uh -huh. if, I'm in, if I'm working in a team, my colleagues have to read it to understand. So you should write code once, but it's going to get read lots and lots and lots of time. Right. So, so Apple's done a really good job there of making code readable. Um, and there's lots of things like that. There's, there's many, many arguments you can make why Swift is a, a great language to be using. Well, those are great. And thank you for pointing those out. And uh, yeah, again, just really, really excited um, to hear you say all that. And okay, so lastly, lastly about um, specifically Swift on the server. A couple weeks ago, there was the announcement of the officially unofficial Docker image uh, for Swift. Can you explain what that is and why it was so significant? Um, if if well, at all, it seemed like it was significant. I, I would say it's actually less significant than you might think because it's, it's actually pretty trivial to, to build a Docker image with a language in it. Um, and in fact, I, IBM's had a, a Swift Docker image for a while because we make it available for use in our cloud. You can actually use it anywhere. Um, but basically, it probably is worth pointing out what Docker is. Um, so. Basically, the, the big advantage for Docker is it lets you run something that looks like a Linux machine in a very small container in a small amount of memory um, such that you can run it on your laptop and you don't, it's not like running um, you know, a second copy of your operating system and so on. It's a much smaller container than that. And not only does it give you a way of developing on Linux locally, um, you can then package up that thing that you've created and you can deploy it to a cloud. So it's, um, it's a way of kind of uh, making it much easier for you to build, package, and deploy um, server, server applications on, on Linux. So why do you think it seemed like there was such a big kind of splash? I mean, it seemed to me, you know, it was like there was an announcement. Someone wrote an article, I think, about it, and then it got retweeted, and then it was in a couple newsletters. Like, why do you think it's like people were excited about it? Um, I, I think it's probably because it's another show of commitment um, from people that, oh. you know, this is this is getting serious on the server. Um, okay. Yeah, that's it, good. So, so I, I think it's more about, you know, there's another group that they did this because they, they you know, you build this stuff because you want it yourself, right? And you need it. Um, so I think the fact there was yet another group of people saying, hey, we've done this because it's really cool. Um, uh, I think that's probably why it was so interesting. As I said, you know, we we actually released one from from IBM a few months ago, and maybe we should make more noise about it then. 
Okay, so then that officially unofficial Docker image, that's actually was created and released by Docker. Um, was it? Oh, I don't know. I, well, I thought that's, I'm not sure. I thought that's what you so, were saying. Um, no, no, no. Um, so there's such a thing, there's a thing called the Docker registry, um, okay. which is a way of finding things. And I, I think it was just a, a group of people that created it and released it. Okay, okay. Um, so last last week, we, um, as I said, we did a IBM, you know, Swift, or like Swift Keturah, like server. Uh, we used like a stencil template engine with, and the responses were, were being routed by a Swift server, and then we went to deploy it using DigitalOcean, and like DigitalOcean has like all these different like choices, and one of them was like Docker, and so I was thinking like, oh, okay, maybe that that's like what we're using, like maybe that's how we're doing this with that Docker image. Um, so I don't know that's sort of how it seemed relevant to me. Yep, that that oh. may well be the case. Uh, yeah. Um, so moving on, because I, I really want to talk about this stuff, and it sounds like you have um, you know, you have some interest in it. So other applications of Swift. Uh, so let's put them all out there. Um, you know, you have all of Apple's platforms. So right now there's four, um, and and so that's like making client side applications for the phone, the Mac, the watch, the TV. Uh, last night I had a, uh, a meetup session about scripting and command line tools in Swift. So that's one application, right? So you're like building little programs that run on the command line, uh, whether it's a script or, or a binary. Then you have server side Swift, which is what we've been talking about, right? So writing um, applications that live on Linux or live on a server, they're written in Swift, and they do things. They respond to requests, or they calculate they calculate things, or they send information. Um, then you have, uh, you know, Chris Latner talks, and I think even when they introduced Swift, they talked about, like, uh, systems development, like creating a whole operating system in Swift. Um, what are some other applications? You mentioned Internet of Things, like embedded devices, clouds. Like, what are what are some other potential applications that you're getting excited about besides uh, Swift on the server? Yeah, so I don't think there's there's many use cases I can think of where Swift would actually be inappropriate. I mean, so you know, we've already got it on mobile de devices. Um, it's available on a, a Raspberry Pi. That was done uh, a number of months ago. Um, there's a version of it that runs on mainframes, so you know these uh, big iron um, servers that, that IBM builds. We, we, we've done that as well. Um, so in terms of where it's available, it's already pretty broad, um, and you know I think it's just a matter of time until there's fully working versions on Windows. Right? Some some work's already been done to to try and get that going, um, and I think. As we bring it to more and more different places, um, the community is going to come up with some very interesting ways of, of using it. Um, as I said, I think the fact that it's come from an embedded device, so it's small and fast, um, gives it a, a huge amount of opportunity for things like IoT and embedded. Um, I think at the, the other end of the scale, um, you know, Swift has a lot of things in common with, with a couple of other programming languages. Go is one of them. Um, and if you're um, aware of Hyperledger and blockchain, so this technology for doing um, for doing financial contract um, settling, which is based on Bitcoin, um, that's entirely written in Go. And I think wow. Swift actually, because it has a lot of similarities, c 
could be used in those same sorts of places. So I think you could, you know, a few years from now, very easily see people writing, you know, financial transactions, doing high performance trading and this sort of stuff in Swift. Wow. So let's take uh, like a couple examples. Let's take um, the mainframe at IBM, for instance. Like, what does that mean that Swift is running on a mainframe? Like, what is what's the difference between like Swift on the server and Swift on a mainframe? Uh, what does that mean? Um, well, largely you can you can think of as uh, mainframes as just being very large, powerful servers. Um, they are incredibly good at um, I/O, so you know input output processing, um, and they are highly resilient. Now, where they generally get used is in things like financial institutions where. You know, 100% reliability. Um, I think their their mean time to component failure is supposed to be over 50 years. Um, so, you know, this is where applications are designed and run that really are truly like critical and should not fail. Um, so, the fact that Swift is running there means that it's opening it up to um, you know those fairly um, serious use cases. Wow. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what comes out of that in the next uh, 12 months or so and, and what people start to create. So when you say like mainframe, it's like kind of like a like a database sort of is it like where we store data or is it more computational? It's it's computational, but it's very good at acting on data. So okay. um, you get data analytics running there and the like. And so is that this is it essentially doing the same thing, though? It's Swift running on Linux? Is um, so, it, or are so mainframes different? Uh, there, there's two flavors of operating system you can run. There is Linux. So there's something called uh, Linux One, which is Linux on the mainframe. Um, and it also has its own operating system called ZOS. Um, and they're, they're slightly different. Um, and it, it again, it's kind of like the, the web frameworks. is what style of usage you've got for it. And um, ZOS, the, the um, the, the actual uh, original operating system for it is backwards compatible to, um, you know, it will still run mainframe code that was written 50 years ago. Okay, and then let's take something um, on the opposite side, something really small. Uh, that's, that's not an, uh, an Apple device. So let's take something like Raspberry Pi. Um, you can imagine, ra Raspberry Pi is pretty small, but you can imagine it becoming even smaller. Um, and then Swift somehow Swift is on there. I'm not sure what that even means, like how that is. But then I could create like my own little embed, I don't know, some kind of sensor. I don't know. Let's say it's just a cube. And it, the cube has a few sensors on it. It has an API that I developed. And the, the API is in Swift. And so is that sort of what we mean when we say like, an embeddable Internet of Things device not owned by Apple. I mean, even something like the Nest thermostat or like Alexa or something like that. Like, It's not owned by Apple. It has an API for developing so developers can create new use cases and new applications. Is that is that what we mean? Because sometimes I kind of – not like it's weird to me to think about like developing for a device, like a physical device that's not an Apple device. Like I don't really understand that sometimes. So is that what we mean? Like, for instance, on the Raspberry Pi? 
Yeah, I mean, so in terms of the, the sorts of stuff people are playing around with at the moment, so you can use a, a Raspberry Pi as a controller um, where you attach you know, sensors that you can buy from your, your local electronic shop. So you can add a, a temperature sensor to it or a humidity sensor. And you can program in Swift on the Raspberry Pi to interact with those sensors, collect data, and send them to, um, send them to like a, a Swift server and then write an iOS app that interacts with the server to find out what the temperature and humidity is at home, right? Wow. So that's something that you can probably do today with the, people, with, with the pieces that you've got. Wow. Um, other things you can do, so things like AR drones. Um, it's po- it, I believe it's already possible to, to run Swift on an AR drone, so you can actually make it you know, self-aware and self-piloting if you wanted to. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of possibilities from, you know, things like sensors to um, doing self-driving drones or given that Chris Latner's moved to Tesla, maybe self-driving cars. Wow, um, that'd be so cool. <laughs> and if you think about what you're already doing on iOS devices, right? Um, so you have things like UIKit that allows you to build an actual UI. Now, if I was to build, um, you know, a smart fridge, for example, um, I might want to be able to have a UI that controls the temperature inside it or something like that at the same time as having it as an Internet of Things device that, um, you know, is aware of what's being put in and taken out of the fridge to do online ordering or, you know, just to send me an alert to my phone to say, hey, your fridge is broken. Um, so the fact that you would want to have a UI on it to have some kind of control means that. Swift, because it already has things like UIKit, um, would be a, a, a good example of, of something that you could use there. Wow, super interesting. Okay, so we are at the end, but there's just a couple things I, I want to ask really quickly before we we uh, stop with the with the sort of the non typical Swift applications. Like, what does it really mean to like put Swift on Raspberry Pi? Like, if someone wanted to look into that, like. How do they go about and, and do that? Like, how do they do that? Like, what does that even mean, putting Swift on a Raspberry Pi? Um, so there's, there's two parts of it. So um, the first thing that has to happen is Swift needs to run on ARM, right? That's the, the chipset that um, under, is used on a Raspberry Pi. Um, so whereas you know, um, Mac OS is running on Intel, Linux is running on Intel, um, there's a, an ARM chip inside a Raspberry Pi. Now that work's already been done, but there's no formal builds for it. So you kind of have to build it yourself. Um, then it's the same thing you do to install Swift on your, your laptop or onto a Linux box. You take that build, you put it onto the machine and you just run it there. So um, you know, a Raspberry Pi is effectively running Linux on it. So you're, it's as if you're you're running uh, Linux on a, a laptop, but you're running it on a Raspberry Pi. And then you need to be able to interact with things like the sensors. Now, most of those, um, most of those SDKs or APIs to work with the sensors are, that exist today are C code. Um, but one of the great things about Swift is Swift can interact directly with existing C code. Um, so the fact that no one has written um, a device driver for a certain sensor in Swift isn't a problem as long as there's a C package, then you can use that from the Swift code. Wow, 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 wow! 
Okay, so thank you so much. That was that was really really great. Um, we have come to the end. I want to do something that I've uh, sort of tried out recently, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's sort of like a little rapid fire section, and so I want to do that with you um, real quick. So first question, uh, rapid fire, Chris Bailey, what drives you? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I think um, I would say I'm an engineer. Right. So I like fixing problems. So I'm kind of innately driven to fix problems. So if I see something that I think could be done better, I kind of give it a go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Preaching in the choir. It's so it's so freeing when you realize that about yourself and you you decide to harness that energy and 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 use it for good i mean i realized that about myself um and here i am now and so that actually is one of my superpowers um and i think all engineers i feel like that's their superpowers like solving problems whether it's a simple solution we also like finding complex solutions because it's fun and we like finding efficient solutions like and yeah so okay great i love that okay next is uh desktop or laptop I exclusively use a laptop. Nice. Yeah, so I, I, I don't Sorry, have like pluggable keyboards or monitors or any of that stuff. I, I, yeah, I just use a laptop. Nice. Standing or sitting? Um, oh, I'm not sure I should admit to this. Um, I kind of do neither. I'm, I'm very bad. I tend to sit with my feet on the desk and the laptop actually on my lap. <laughs> I, I'm probably nice. going to have really bad back trouble uh in the future and i probably won't be able to sue ibm now because i've said this live but there you go <laughs> um git from the command line git from the gui or what is git <laughs> um a mix of gui and command line um so if i'm squashing commits i'm never ever going to do that from the command line but i generally push from the command line nice vim or emacs uh the eye oh nice nice i should probably add that okay great what what uh real quick like what's the difference between vi and vim um i don't know because i've never really moved on to using vim I, okay. I think vim gives you a lot more ui features and is easier to use okay um, but I think for me it's like... kind of like sorry go ahead well for, for me it's kind of like it's whatever you started with. And once you've got used to a, a, um, a, a text editor like that, it's kind of like you don't change, right? So I think yeah, yeah. that classic argument, like Vim or VI versus Emacs, it's whichever one I started with. Yeah, nice. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> tabs or spaces? Um, tabs, but my tabs are set up to be spaces. Nice, nice. Uh, tests or no tests? uh test first isn't it nice nice <laughs> okay um let's see i have a couple more um let's see one is uh twitter bio i feel like your twitter bio is like pretty self-explanatory um what about your twitter um like i like your twitter profile picture what's up with that i've seen you in person you don't look fuzzy in person what's up with your <laughs> twitter profile picture? um oh so i think that was a matter of desperation to find something with a headshot. And I think that was taken from a video interview I did like five or six years ago. So I like how you have a conference badge too. Yeah. So 
so it's it's a still taken from a uh, from a video. And the Stonehenge, your um, Twitter like um, banner, the Stonehenge. You visited there once. Um, a couple of times actually. So where we're where I'm based in the UK, um, Stonehenge is only about forty five minutes away, so it's not that it's not too far from us. Wow. Yeah. And I'm looking at one of your latest posts on Twitter and it says back in the mountains for the first climb of the year. Are you a climber? Yeah. Yeah. Not as not as often as I would like to. Um, I, I used to climb four times a week or so. Um, but oh, wow. yeah, I still I still climb and I still get outside occasionally. Um, that was that was Snowden last weekend um, and it was cold. It was one degree, I think. So, yeah. Wow, I have my uh, rock climbing merit badge. I think I might get back into it. Okay, so for the very, very last uh, uh, bit, uh, where can people contact you online? Um, the easiest is you know, probably Twitter, um, although I've made it deliberately difficult to find me by having Chris Bailey with two underscores in the middle. Um <laughs> And I did the same thing for, for GitHub. So my uh, uh, my Git handle is C Bailey, but you have to know it's C as in S E A, Bay as in B A Y, and then Lee as in L E A. Um, which when I say to someone, "Oh yeah, it's C Bailey," look me up. No one's ever going to get that. So I, I I say Twitter's the easiest, but I've made that difficult. <laughs> oh man. Okay. And uh, finally, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Um, my usual advice for anyone trying to learn any programming language is think of something you're going to build, right? And it doesn't need to be difficult, but, um, it's, you've got to have a goal of what you're going to try and build when you start and focus in on actually building that because once you've, once you've created something, then you kind of emotionally invested in it. And when you're finding something difficult, um, you know, you've got that extra push to, to keep on going and, and try and create it and finish it if you're, you know, you know what you're actually trying to do. If you just turn up and say, well, okay, I'm going through this, this, this guide and okay, so I can add these two numbers together. That's great. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, you can drop out at any point and give up. Um, so I would say, you know, just find something you want to be able to do and go off and, and work out how to do it. Yep, totally agree. That's definitely uh, what got me to where I am. Have something to build. Have a goal of something to build in mind. Uh, very, very great advice. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We didn't get to uh, learn about your story. Maybe one day we'll have you back on. You'll give us an update of all the amazing work you're doing, and we can learn about you know who you are and, and your background. But there was just way too much to talk about, and we just <laughs> we went straight for it. Uh, and I wasn't planned. It just happened. And uh, I'm really, really uh, happy to hear about all that, uh, all that stuff. I mean, Swift is announced immediately, um, you know, porting found foundation, I think, uh, to Linux. And then, uh, um, you know, just doing all the server working uh, group stuff, you know, so obviously like Kitura, but then getting all the sort of the heads of the family together and, you know, forming an alliance uh, to, uh, you know, standardize server side Swift. Um, so that it's better prepared for, as Chris Latner says, uh, very interestingly, so world domination. And uh, yeah, it's just telling us about 
um, sort of the state of Swift um, on the server and how you feel like very soon, uh, within the next sort of 12 months, it's going to be even more talked about and more of a real, real thing. And then um, shedding light on what it means to run Swift um, on other non-typical um, you know, applications like mainframes, Raspberry Pi, cloud, um, who knows, like machine learning or uh, you know, self, you know, automated driving. Um, yeah, so thank you for sharing all of that and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for all your work for making Swift amazing. Thank you. Yep, and thanks for having me. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.